You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last week, we discussed the early days of Queen Elizabeth's rule. We talked about the challenges she faced, as well as the tactics that she used to overcome them, including a new class of mariners in England, men who were young, ambitious, eager to make their fortunes and their name, known as the Gentlemen Adventurers. And we talked about some of England's earliest voyages to the Caribbean, Voyages under a man named John Hawkins, and one voyage under another captain named John Lovell. At least one, maybe two of these voyages, had on board a young, highly talented mariner named Francis Drake. Today we're going to be talking about the third voyage of John Hawkins. This was a much larger voyage than any of the three previous had been that also had on board Francis Drake. This voyage would change relations between England and Spain forever and it would shape the worldview and the future career of Sir Francis Drake. This is episode number seven, El Drake. Last week we discussed how John Hawkins, John Lovell, and Francis Drake were all members of those West Country Englishmen, born in or around the town of Plymouth, who were fiercely Protestant, extraordinarily loyal to the Queen, and yet acted many times of their own accord in matters of both trade and piracy. But I didn't give much background about any of these men, and I'd like to about Francis Drake. Now, we don't know a whole lot about him. He was not born a nobleman, so there were very few records kept about him or his family. What there is, mostly, is tax records and a few arrest records, but we can piece together a little bit about his early life. We can assume that Francis Drake was born in February or March, 1540. We know that his father, Edmund, was a farmer, a shepherd, and a cloth manufacturer. Now, this was pretty typical of any farmers in England, especially in the West Country at the time. Most of them raised sheep and would then manufacture cloth, which was England's prime export. There is a record that after the English Reformation under Henry VIII, his father became a priest in the English church. However, that doesn't exactly make him a pacifist. There are records that show that Francis Drake's father was something of a violent man. Now, not necessarily against his family or against Francis, but there are several arrest records about him. We do know that he was arrested for assaulting and robbing a man with another accomplice, and then, after being released just a few miles away, assaulting and robbing another man of his horse and his purse. After these two incidents, his father was forced to leave home. The shame was just too great. However, this probably didn't have a huge effect on Francis. He had already left home to get his education. When he was still very young, Francis, along with all of his brothers and a number of other boys from the community, went to study at the home of William Hawkins. That was the father of John Hawkins, who was about the same age as Francis, and it's reported that they became pretty quick friends. It's also acknowledged that they were, quote, close kinsmen, end quote. In those days, it was pretty typical for boys who were what you might call middle class to receive an education at the household of a relative or a close family friend. And many of this clan and people in that West Country region did so at the Hawkins household. That's where they learned to do things like read and write. It's where they learned basic arithmetic and a fair amount of what you'd consider gentlemanly manners. That included how to behave at a dinner table, how to talk to one's elders, and how to talk to one's betters. Everybody from higher-up merchants to nobility to even royalty. And at the Hawkins household, they learned about the doctrine of the English church. They read the Bible, which was something that hadn't really been done by most young men before. And they were taught about the reported excesses of the Catholic church. In exchange for their education, boys all across Europe would work for the families in question. If the family they were working for were, say, copper smelters, they would learn the craft of copper smelting. 
In the case of the Hawkins family, they were merchants and mariners, and these boys worked off the debt for their education on board a ship. They traveled all around Europe, from France to Spain to the Low Countries, even occasionally into the Mediterranean. They watched and learned as their elders bought and sold goods, when they negotiated terms, and sometimes when the ship would come upon a small, unsuspecting ship, they would watch as their elders overtook that ship and would negotiate a transfer of goods at the point of a sword. Now, we don't have any proof that Francis Drake was on board any of these trading voyages, but he probably was. We do know that John Hawkins was on board many of these training voyages, and so it can be assumed that Francis was alongside him. Our first records of Francis Drake on board a ship don't happen until he's about 17 or 18 years old, but then we do know that he was sailing on ships owned by the Hawkins family. Now, these voyages were voyages that went primarily into French waters that had a single goal, the sacking, plunder, and sometimes outright theft of these French ships. Now, this wasn't exactly a respectable vocation at the time, even in that West Country area, but it was a known fact of life and something that the government, all the way from the local officials all the way up to the queen, would turn a blind eye to. Francis did pretty well as a pirate. In fact, we know that by the age of probably 20, maybe 21, he was actively investing in other, more legitimate voyages of the Hawkins family. I'd like to take a step back and for a minute take a look at the process of investing in nautical voyages. I've made mention of it, but I haven't really gone into much depth about it. Any voyage at sea is, of course, going to be something that's very expensive. You needed, of course, a seaworthy ship. You needed a captain and other officers. You needed a crew, as well as provisions to keep that crew alive. You would need to take care of the maintenance of the ship while it was in port. You would need things like hemp rope, tar, lumber, other things that would actually keep the ship held together, sails. You would also need on board many armaments to defend the ship in case anything happened. Now, this included not only things like powder and shot for the cannons, but also some of those early rifles that existed, as well as a fair number of bows, arrows, and cold steel. Now, this was a large investment for any single person to make. There were, of course, people in England that were rich enough to finance their own expeditions. However, if something did happen to the ship despite all those armaments on board, that would be a huge loss to whoever was the single person that invested in it. So, the practice of other people investing in these voyages to mitigate any losses began. That, of course, meant that there was a smaller return for a single investor. However, when one person invested in a number of voyages, then they could make the same amount of money, while the possibility of losing one voyage, either to piracy or inclement weather, they would mitigate their losses. That's why merchant guilds and trading companies, kind of like the Muscovy Company, who we talked about last week, that's why they were cropping up all over Europe, and investors were eager to invest their money into any merchant voyage they could find. It wasn't just the merchants, though. Nobility, all the way up to royalty, were investing in these voyages. If you remember, Columbus was unable to get his voyage paid for until he had the backing of the King and Queen of Spain. This brought in a lot of other investors for Columbus that actually managed to get the voyage paid for. This was typical in England as well. Whenever Elizabeth would back a voyage, then many other investors in her court would decide that this was probably a safe bet, and if nothing else, it looked very good to the queen to be investing in something that she cared about. You could usually expect some members of the navy in Elizabeth's court to be investing in many voyages, but if they managed to convince Elizabeth herself, then other members of her privy council were likely to invest as well, even for voyages that weren't publicly known to have the backing of the crown, such as John Hawkins' voyages were. They couldn't exactly put out a press release saying that these voyages meant to undermine Spanish trade in the Caribbean were backed by the crown. However, they were backed financially by the queen and many of her highest counselors. This was deeply inflammatory to both the Portuguese and the Spanish, and it was something of a gamble on Elizabeth's part. But she was betting on Philip of Spain's need to keep himself out of yet another war. He was still engaged in the Low Countries. He was still uh, at heightened tensions with France, and most importantly, probably, he was still in North Africa in open war against the Muslims. 
In the meantime, the war between England and Scotland had essentially come to a close. Elizabeth now held Mary, Queen of Scots, in her custody, which had somewhat helped tensions between France and England subside, at least anything coming close to active warfare. And Philip knew that the actions of Elizabeth were a direct response to his losing Calais and closing off the port at Antwerp. This was essentially a game of diplomatic chess, and right now Elizabeth was countering. Her adversary wasn't really Philip, though. It was probably Guzman de Silva, the Spanish ambassador in England. He was the man that really contested every move that the Queen made. He confronted her openly on the second voyage of John Hawkins and her role in it. Elizabeth claimed that John Hawkins was nothing but a prosperous merchant who had her blessing, but not her backing. However, all that De Silva really had to do was look into the harbor to see that John Hawkins was outfitting the Queen's own ship for his next voyage to know that she wasn't exactly being truthful with him. And that's exactly what Elizabeth wanted. She wanted De Silva, as well as King Philip, to know that this was a direct challenge to Philip's moves against England. She would tell De Silva that the seas were free, and that a vibrant trade in the Caribbean could only help the Spanish citizens. Guzman de Silva wrote again and again to King Philip, and King Philip was obviously outraged, but he didn't really give de Silva any ammunition that he could use to stop Elizabeth. The Portuguese ambassador was given an even more dismissive treatment. When he came to protest the actions of John Hawkins' first voyage, the Queen told him that his protests were essentially pointless, because he had already sailed for his second. Some of John Hawkins' very first stops were reprisals against the Portuguese, where he attacked fishing villages and trading outposts and made a small fortune in gold and wax and ivory and pearls. These attacks of his second voyage against the Portuguese and the Spanish were a large part of the reason that John Lovell's voyage did so poorly. However, when John Hawkins began to prepare a couple of years later for his third voyage, hopes were high. He was seen as a much better captain, commander, and trader than John Lovell was. Merely having his name attached to the voyage attracted investors from the highest sectors in England. The manifest of his investors, it reads like a who's who of Elizabethan London. At the top of the list was the Queen, who invested two of her own ships. There was also Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. Dudley was, at the time, the Queen's favorite, and probably actually the Queen's lover. Robert Dudley had met Elizabeth when they were both in the Tower of London, and they became somewhat devoted to each other and probably fallen in love. He was in the Tower of London for the plot, that rebellion, to undermine Queen Mary and put Elizabeth on the throne. He was, from the time of Elizabeth's succession, really her most trusted advisor, and he was probably the one man whose loyalty was never in question. Elizabeth was known to spend most of her idle hours with Robert Dudley, and even known to come into his bedchambers sometimes, very late at night. Dudley was given some of the highest honors at court, and some of the most responsibility of any man in Elizabeth's court. She even named him regent if anything were to happen to her, and Dudley even ruled England for a small time when Elizabeth fell ill. The next man that you would see on the list of investors for this voyage was really Dudley's main competition for influence at court and the Queen's favor. He was the highest advisor that was on her privy council. His name was William Cecil. He was the guy that really saw to the day-to-day -day bureaucratic running of England he was a notoriously honest man, the man that Elizabeth trusted to tell her any hard truths that nobody else in her court was willing to, sometimes not even Robert Dudley. Now, Dudley and Cecil were bitter enemies. They couldn't be more different. Really, their personalities were somewhat symbolic of Elizabeth's England. Dudley was a really flamboyant character. He was young and handsome, and he dressed extravagantly. If you were to picture William Shakespeare, or at least how he dressed, you'd have a picture of Dudley. He would wear very fancy shoes and brightly colored stockings and those strange puffy shorts that everybody seems to be wearing. He would have a fine embroidered coat and a big flamboyant hat, probably with a feather sticking out of it, and a sword at his hip. Cecil, on the other hand, was a Puritan. He would have worn almost all black a very plain black coat, 
plain pants, plain boots, probably a hat, and instead of a sword on his hip, he probably had a folio under his arm. And these were the two most powerful men in Elizabeth's court, and they frequently clashed, sometimes bitterly, sometimes violently. And this was reportedly something that Elizabeth supported somewhat, maybe not openly, but the competition was something she saw as a positive. These men started to gather supporters who would travel around the capital armed, and they would wear armbands or cockades that would show their allegiance to either Cecil or Dudley. And sometimes, whenever these armed bands would encounter each other, they would draw their swords and share words, and occasionally blood would even be spilled. Cecil said that he didn't approve of these violent interactions. He was a man who thought that that was inappropriate. However, he probably backed it from behind the scenes. That's similar to how he said he didn't approve of these maritime adventures all over the world or those who invested in them. However, in John Hawkins' third voyage, he invested some of his own money after seeing some of the returns that his friends and colleagues had. And then came essentially everybody else in the London elite. Other lords, Dudley's own brother, the Earl of Warwick, the Earl of Pembroke, the Lord Admiral of the Navy, William Winter, who we spoke about last week, and his brother George Winter, who was another major naval figure, John Hawkins' older brother, William. Then came, essentially, all of the merchant families in London. Any major guilds or leaders in the commercial sector, not just from London, but from all over England, especially from Plymouth, John Hawkins' hometown. Everyone who was anyone wanted a share in this voyage, and they all bought in. John Hawkins was extremely well-funded. He had all the money and provisions and armaments he could need, but a crew was somewhat harder to come by. Voyages to the African coast had a bad reputation, and men who sailed on those voyages frequently didn't come back. And even those who did hardly made any money. They didn't get equal shares by any means. They got paid a stipend, and they would be away from home for years. It wasn't worth it to any mariners in England, so they had to resort to the press gang. They would get men drunk if they were lucky, but sometimes just attack them in an alleyway, knock them over the head, and then these poor men would wake up on board a ship on their way to the Americas. But press gangs were efficient, and after only a few days, they had the men they needed to flesh out their ships, and they were ready to set sail. And on October 2nd, 1567, they did so. There were six ships total in the fleet. The two that belonged to the Queen were the 700-ton Jesus of Lubbock, which was the flagship captained by John Hawkins himself, and the 300-ton Minion. The other four ships belonged to the Hawkins brothers, William and John. First of all, the aptly named William and John. Then there was the Swallow, the Angel, and the Judith. Now, we know Francis Drake was aboard the Judith. However, reports are conflicting as to what his rank on the Judith was. Later in life, Francis Drake would say that he was captain from the moment they set sail. There were also testimonies from some of his men that said he was the captain from the very beginning. These testimonies, however, were taken by the Spanish Inquisition, and they were looking at the time for as much evidence to implicate Francis Drake in as many crimes as possible as they could find. So, these testimonies aren't exactly trustworthy. But he was, at the time, at least on board the Judith. It's also important to mention that this was more than just a merchant voyage. This was a national undertaking, and these ships were heavily armed. The Jesus of Lubbock had the Queen's own colors alongside the flag of St. George flying atop her mainmast. They were bristling with cannon, and the men aboard them were, in many cases, highly trained soldiers of the Queen's own army. And John Hawkins had, in his possession, a commission from Queen Elizabeth herself that ordered him not to offend England's allies, namely Portugal and Spain. However, John Hawkins had no intention of following these orders, and Ambassador da Silva knew this. Just a few days after setting sail, the fleet was scattered by a terrible storm. Nearly all the ships lost sight of each other, and the Jesus of Lubbock took severe damage. It was so bad that just a few days after setting out, John Hawkins seriously considered turning back and going back to London. But almost as soon as the storm ended, the angel managed to find the Jesus of Lubbock. They decided that the best course of action would be to go ahead and continue their voyage, to go to the Canaries, which every ship in the fleet knew was their first destination. 
The Minion, the William and John, and the Swallow had found each other as well, and they were heading to the Canaries. However, Drake's ship, the Judith, was nowhere to be found, and it was presumed sunk. It took a few days, but when John Hawkins had nearly made it to port in the Canaries, he caught up with the Judith. Francis Drake, who was almost certainly its captain by now, had sailed straight through the storm, with no loss of life and almost no damage to the ship. This had to be kind of impressive to John Hawkins, who was an old friend but a highly accomplished ship's captain, and he was limping into port. Drake fired off a salute to his admiral, and they discussed what to do. Drake had been to this same port on the voyage of John Lovell just a few years before, and they had been very badly received. He didn't want to sail into port on his own. And that was probably a smart move, because when these three ships made landfall, a militia was marched out to the docks and put in place to guard these English ships. The harbormaster came out to inspect the ships and saw that all three of them were bristling with firepower and that the men on board were heavily armed and obviously well-trained. But he also saw that the Jesus of Lubbock was badly damaged and gave the English permission to repair her, as long as they agreed to stay on board, not come ashore, and not cause any trouble. But if you're a sailor, who has just escaped almost certain death from a terrible storm almost immediately after leaving home, and on your first landfall, you're not allowed to set foot on land, where you can see taverns serving ale and fresh, hot food, and as many women as you could possibly want. Well, sailors don't take to those orders too well, and tensions were very high. Two men found themselves in what could be considered a violent disagreement. One of them was named Edward Dudley. He was the captain of all the soldiers. Essentially, he was the man that, whenever they landed in the Caribbean, would be in charge of all of the soldiers. But he and another man decided that they were going to row ashore and fight a duel. Now, Dudley went to shore first in his own boat, and John Hawkins stopped the second man and followed Dudley. Hawkins stopped the duel from taking place, which would have broken his promise to keep his men in line. However, Dudley was outraged. Harsh words were almost certainly exchanged, things began to get a little bit violent, and then Dudley drew his sword and struck his captain above the eye with the hilt, drawing blood. Now that's mutiny. It's mutiny to strike any senior officer. John Hawkins said that that was something, however, that he would be able to forgive except that he was the admiral of a fleet commissioned by the queen, and he said that this was as bad as striking the queen herself. Hawkins ordered Dudley put in chains. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. He drew his harquebus. He pointed it directly at Dudley, and told him to say his prayers and prepare to die. Dudley pleaded for his life. He begged for forgiveness. The other Englishmen begged in his favor. Even a foreign priest came down to see what was happening and to beg for John Hawkins to spare his life, which finally he did. He helped Dudley to his feet and removed the irons himself. There were no more incidents while in port. Hawkins had received word that the rest of his fleet was waiting not too far away, and as soon as the Jesus was repaired, they set sail to meet them. 
when Hawkins and Drake arrived in port where the other three ships were waiting, a celebration ensued. The governor was kind enough to bring them food, wine, and even a large number of fresh oranges. However, in their revelry and in their drink, many of the Englishmen began to disrespect this warm welcome that the Spanish had given them. They went ashore and they burned effigies of the saints. They shot their cannon at the local church. They overturned a cross and they even set fire to the door of a local hermitage. Now these men were English Protestants and they fell into that same sect of society that William Cecil did. They were Puritans and they were highly religious. They held prayers on board three times a day and every ship in the fleet had a priest on board. They saw their actions in the Spanish port as defensible and justified in the eyes of God. They saw the Catholic veneration of the Pope and the saints and the Virgin Mary as ungodly and sinful and the worship of false idols. And they weren't alone in Europe. They were members of what was really a growing and divisive movement. There were other groups of Puritans doing similar things, such as the Anabaptists, or you even see similar stuff today when, say, Muslim extremists in the Middle East will destroy what they consider false idols. Groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS have a long history of defacing some of the world's most treasured historical landmarks because they consider them something that distracts from God. So make no mistake, the men on board this English voyage of John Hawkins were extremists and zealots, the kind of men who would disrespect a warm welcome by setting fire to and shooting your church with cannons. The question is, though, is that what Queen Elizabeth would have wanted? Now, we know that she wanted to disrupt Spanish trade, and we know that she wanted to send a message of defiance to Philip. And she wanted to show all of Europe that England had a growing naval presence that was something to be feared. But does a mob of drunken, devout Englishmen really project her power? Or does it make her look like a queen of what's nothing more than a nation of brigands and pirates? You know, she may have personally enjoyed hearing the exploits of this voyage. It may have brought her some satisfaction, but it really must have made her job a whole lot harder when dealing with Spain and Portugal. So, naturally, as soon as they sobered up, Hawkins' fleet was chased from port. They decided to move on with their journey. So they began harassing primarily Portuguese, but some Spanish fishing villages similar to John Hawkins' second voyage. They started capturing slaves on the coast. They tried to do this on their own at first, but that didn't end well for them. So they started looking for richer prizes. Soon, they came upon a French fort, and they decided to take the ships that were waiting in the harbor. It's around this time that the histories start to get a little bit muddled. There are a number of differing accounts that make it hard to figure out exactly what happened. What we know is that one or maybe two of the French ships were added to the English fleet. What we don't know is whether or not these ships were taken by force. Some accounts say that the English snuck in in the middle of the night, took all of the French ships, and sold all but two of them back to the French. Other accounts say that some of these Frenchmen they found at this port agreed to accompany the English on their voyage. After all, these Frenchmen wouldn't have kept a record of themselves deciding to turn pirate, and later, talking to French officials, would have lied and blamed it all on the English. See, it's recorded that at this time, a French ship called the Don de Dieu, or the Gift of God, joined the fleet, commanded by a French captain named Paul Blondel. However, it's also said that a few days later, the English fleet came upon a group of Portuguese ships and took them by force. Now, a ship in that fleet called the Gracia de Dios, the Grace of God, was reportedly given to Francis Drake as his first captaincy. However, there are pretty convincing accounts that Drake was already a captain, according to some records, and the name of that Portuguese ship, the Grace of God, is almost exactly the same as that French ship, the Gift of God. So, was Drake's first captaincy on that Portuguese ship that they took by force, or was he already a captain, and did a French ship join their fleet captained by a French captain? And then it gets worse. Later, Drake is said to be leading his own raiding parties ashore to capture African slaves. 
Now, this was happening while John Hawkins was elsewhere in Africa, making alliance with certain African kings and aiding them in battle against their enemies. These African kings and Hawkins had struck a deal in which they would split any captives taken between them. In addition to that, it's said that the fleet that arrived in the Caribbean sometime later was much larger than the one that set out from England. So I tried to synthesize these differing accounts. From all of the testimonies at the time, as well as other court documents and primary sources, as well as the later accounts of Drake himself, and the differing accounts from historians that came later, there are many different stories, but it all seems to point to something to me. It sounds like when Hawkins was making alliances with the different kings, he sent Drake along with some other ships on ahead to pursue his own mission. From Drake's own men and his own accounts, it sounds like he actually befriended some of the French pirates on the coast of Africa. Now, this is not out of the question, because if you recall, on his voyage with John Lovell, they allied themselves with several French pirates. It's even possible, although there's no proof, that Drake had planned ahead to meet these French pirates on the African coast. You see, most of the French pirates of the time were rebels against the crown and Protestants themselves, people that these Protestant Englishmen would have had something of a kindred spirit with. So it makes sense that if the English fleet, led by Drake, met up with some French pirates, they might attack some Portuguese Catholic ships, and then later say that they weren't the pirates, it was the fault of either those dastardly Frenchmen or those piratical Englishmen. You see, the reason this becomes very confusing is because Many later historians have attributed Drake's first captaincy to that Portuguese Gracia de Dios, that grace of God. They're going on a revised account that came later, many years later, from some of Drake's men that said, quote, Francis Drake was made master and captain of the caravel after they took that supposedly Portuguese ship. However, these historians are dismissing earlier accounts from some of the same sailors who said that Drake was captain well before this. However, a prominent biographer of Francis Drake, a man named Harry Kelsey, uh, believes that his first captaincy was in fact on the Judith at the outset of the voyage. So it seems to me that Drake was probably made some sort of Maybe you'd call him a vice-admiral of the fleet, using his own talents at piracy, which we know he has had a long career of already, to join up with some notorious French pirates and add their ships to the fleet, which they would use to harass any Catholics on the African coast, as well as add to the total number of African slaves that they had taken. While both being able to have a certain amount of plausible deniability to the authorities at large... There's no account of Drake being given a solo command this early. However, later in the voyage, there will be official records that he has been given his own solo commands. So, while this all seems very plausible to me, don't quote me on your history exams. However, after the exploits of Drake and the exploits of Hawkins, the fleet met back up a little bit larger than it was when it had left England... They had about five or six hundred slaves, and at this point, Francis Drake is undisputably Captain Francis Drake. The fleet crossed the Atlantic and made it to the Caribbean. Their first landfall was at Dominica. However, there was no European settlement at Dominica, so they got some fresh timber, restocked their water, and moved on. To once again quote Susan Ronald from her book The Pirate Queen. Quote, at his next port of call, the island of Margarita, the English found the town abandoned and sacked, quote, in a manner all spoiled and burned, with the walls of a house scrawled in charcoal with the phrase in the French language, vengeance for la Florida, End quote. Neither Hawkins nor the Spanish had known that the Florida Indians had virtually destroyed the remaining Spanish outposts in Florida by early 1568. Ever the crowd-pleaser, Hawkins vowed to apprehend the French corsairs, after which their Spanish hosts were so grateful that nine days of friendly trading, linen for gold, and feasting followed. End quote. After their brisk trade, the English left Margarita and headed to their next destination. That was a place called Borborata, 
and they found Borborata as well, abandoned and sacked by the French. Once again, Hawkins sent men out to entice the coloners back to town, and they set up what could be described as a trading emporium on the beach. He learned from the colonists that the French had also attacked Ponce de Leon and the Spanish capital in the region, and he began to trade with them, occasionally even trading slaves and keeping the rest of them on shore and under guard. Now I'm going to venture back into the uncharted waters of speculation. If we assume that what I said earlier, that in fact several French pirates had joined the English fleet that had similar goals to the Englishmen, then we can assume that the French traveled across the Atlantic with them. Hawkins, and especially Drake, knew what a tough time they were going to have selling not only their goods, but their slaves. The voyage of John Lovell had had a huge problem getting rid of any slaves in Spanish territories because the Spanish government had forbidden anyone to buy them. In fact, any trade with the Luteranos was completely out of the question. So if the Englishmen were going to sell slaves in the Caribbean and disrupt Spanish trade as they had been ordered to do, well, they had to find a way to sell the slaves, to convince the Spanish colonists in the Caribbean to buy them. Wouldn't it be kind of a masterstroke, some really supervillain-level machinations, if these Englishmen allied with the French pirates who Drake had met on his previous voyage with John Lovell and then sent the French pirates ahead to sack the Spanish settlements at which the English were going to land shortly thereafter. And then John Hawkins could sail in as a hero, save these Spanish colonists, give them the fresh food that they needed, the shelter they needed, as well as the protection of the many English soldiers from these French corsairs. And then once they felt safe and happy and realized that they were going to rebuild their settlement, he just had the goods and the slaves that they would need to help in that rebuilding. This would allow Hawkins to not only complete his orders from the Queen, in which he would disrupt Spanish trade without offending England's allies, as well as make himself a personal fortune and repay his investors handsomely. This wouldn't break Elizabeth's rules, and yet it would accomplish all of his goals. Now, I haven't read any historians who make this same conclusion, so there may be some very good evidence out there that completely refutes it, and this could prove to be total nonsense. But I really like this story, the idea that these two men who were from countries recently at war could join their fleets together to work in tandem to make money off of the Spanish and disrupt this Catholic trade, which they both despised. Now, at his seaside emporium, Hawkins had a brisk trade in other goods, but his slaves, while he sold a few, were mostly not being sold. The colonists weren't buying as much as he would like. So he ordered his ships to be careened on the beach, that is, cleaned of all the barnacles and other nastiness that ships collect while they're at sea, and wrote a letter to Ponce de Leon. He also wrote a letter to the local bishop, offering to bribe him if he would convince the people to buy his slaves. However, it took a long time, and no answer was forthcoming, but eventually Ponce de Leon did write Hawkins a letter in return that said, quote, Before my eyes I saw the governor my predecessor carried away into Spain for giving license to the country to traffic with you at your last being here, an example for me that I fall not into the like or worse. End quote. So, the Spanish colonists, who were living with and being protected by Hawkins for a while, decided that after hearing this news from Ponce de Leon, they should flee again and run back into the wilderness in the interior of the island. And it's here that Francis Drake, Captain Francis Drake, got his first recorded solo command. He was sent to John Hawkins' next destination at Rio de la Hacha while Hawkins finished careening the ships. To quote one of the sailors on board that voyage that Francis Drake was now in charge of, quote, The Spaniards shot three pieces at us from the shore. We were quitted with two of ours and shot through the governor's house. We weighed anchor and anchored again without shot of the town, where we rode for five days in despite of the Spanish and their shot. In the mean space there came a caravel of advice from the Santo Domingo, whom, with the angel and the Judith, we chased and drove to the shore. We fetched him from thence in spite of two hundred Spanish harquebusters shot, and anchored again before the town. Till our general's coming, who anchored, landed his men, and valiantly took the town with the loss of one man, whose name was Thomas Surgeon. End quote. 
John Hawkins had sent Francis Drake ahead with two other ships to test the waters at the port of Rio de la Hacha, which had probably been warned by Ponce de Leon not to trade with these Englishmen. And when Drake got there, the welcome was not exactly warm. They traded gunfire, there was some fighting, and then Drake retreated back into the ocean to wait for John Hawkins and the rest of the fleet to arrive, at which point Hawkins landed the many trained English soldiers on shore and they took the town by force. The English well and truly sacked this Spanish town. They killed any defenders that decided not to surrender to them. They raided the Spanish treasury there. They, quite literally, raped and pillaged the entire town. And when Rio de la Hacha was finally completely at the mercy of the English, they decided that they would sell the slaves that they had on board to the Spanish there. This was truly commerce by force. This was a tactic that John Hawkins and John Lovell had attempted to use on their previous voyages, but it was really, at that point, more of a ruse. Now, on this voyage, it was really the order of the day. They were actively attacking, fighting, and killing the Spanish so that they would be able to sell them their slaves. After unloading much of his cargo, they left Rio de la Hacha and headed to Cartagena. Cartagena was to be their last port of call. It was a much richer port than anywhere they had seen, and desperately in need of slaves, so they thought that they would be able to make all their profit here. However, Cartagena had gotten the same notice from Ponce de Leon, and they found it a much better defended port than any they had visited previously. So once again, Hawkins resorted to commerce by force. He fired off his cannons several times into the town. However, Cartagena was able to respond in kind, and they were unable to land and unable to sell any of their slaves in the town of Cartagena. And it was getting close to time to leave. The weather was going to grow dangerous very shortly. Hurricane season was on the way, and they realized that they could not wait any longer in the Caribbean. So they decided to cut their losses and head for home, which really there were hardly any losses at all. They had made a tidy profit on this voyage. Nobody was going home poor. They raced north to catch the trade winds that would take them back to England. However, when they reached the Strait of Florida, the men said later that they could smell the hurricane coming. These were accomplished seamen, men who had spent their entire lives on the ocean, and they had seen storms brewing on the horizon before. They knew these signs well. John Hawkins, who was aboard the Jesus of Lubbock, said later that his ship was, quote, not able to bear the sea longer, for in her stern, on either side of the stern post, her planks did open and shut with every sea, the seas being without number, and the leaks so big as the thickness of a man's arm, the living fish did swim upon her ballast as in the sea, end quote. The storm winds battered the ships endlessly, as well as the men on board. They worked the water pumps constantly, and filled every hole only to have another one take its place. The captains ordered parts of their ships demolished to try and make them as light as possible. They dumped cargo, and more than once John Hawkins thought about taking the order to abandon ship. This was much worse than the storm they'd seen at the outset of their voyage, and most of the men did not believe that they were going to make it out alive. But the winds did, finally, die down. However, their fortunes had not improved. The William and John was lost, nowhere to be seen, and presumed sunk. Each of the ships needed repairs desperately, but the Jesus of Lubbock needed repairs more than most. However, John Hawkins was not going to allow the Queen's primary ship to be lost on this voyage. They sailed around, searching both for the William and John, as well as a port in which they could rest and make the repairs they were going to need to make it back to England. However, it became apparent that not only were they very low on food and water, not only were all of the men exhausted, hungry, and many of them injured, they were hopelessly lost. They didn't know where the storm had blown them. None of their sailors or their pilots or their captains knew these waters, and they drifted endlessly on light breezes for days. But then, on the horizon, appeared two Spanish ships. Francis Drake was sent out after them. His ship was sleeker and faster, and he captured them with ease. He found food and water and wine, things that the men on board his fleet needed desperately. He also found a Spanish captain and a pilot who knew where they were and where they were going. They had drifted all the way into the Gulf of Mexico near the Yucatan Peninsula. The Spanish ships were headed to the port at Veracruz which was the closest major port where they would be able to make the repairs necessary to return home to England. So John Hawkins gave the order to sail 
to the port of Veracruz. Three miles from the harbor, John Hawkins ordered the English colors upon his fleet struck down. He wasn't sailing to some out-of-the-way Spanish outpost in the Bahamas. He was sailing to the Spanish main, terra firma. This was a very important city, and he didn't want to turn what was a dangerous situation into an explosive one. The account of how he was received changes depending on who you believe. If you were to listen to John Hawkins and the English soldiers, it appears that they sailed into port, the foolish Spanish believed that they were just a merchant fleet, and they gained control of an island that held the harbor, a position of strength from which they were able to dictate terms. If you believe the accounts of the Spanish, it is said that they sent out a fleet to meet this unknown fleet that had sailed into their harbor, and then relegated them to this island out of the way. But regardless, the English were not allowed to land on the Spanish main. They were allowed to stop on an island just off coast, however. It does seem that their position, in which their ships rested, was something of a position that controlled the harbor, because they learned that only a few days out was the Spanish flota. That is an extremely important Spanish fleet, and this flota had on board the newly appointed viceroy, a man who meant to prove himself against these English corsairs. When the Viceroy arrived, however, he found himself in the same situation that the English found themselves. The weather was worsening, hurricane season was well and truly upon them, and the flota had to make it back to Europe before the Atlantic Ocean became impassable, as did the English fleet. Hawkins' ships managed to keep his flota from entering the harbor, getting the supplies and the repairs they needed to make the voyage back to Spain. So, they began to negotiate. Hawkins found himself in a position of relative strength. However, it was apparent to all the Spanish that his ship was sinking into the harbor as every day passed. Both men needed to reach an agreement as soon as possible. What they decided upon was an exchange of hostages. There were going to be ten men from the English given to the Spanish, and ten men from the Spanish given to the English. Now, these were supposed to be men of some standing. Hawkins chose ten gentlemen adventurers who were from noble families, well-born, educated men. And the Spanish chose ten men, randomly, from among the rank and file of their sailors, and dressed them up as their betters. But the exchange occurred, and the English allowed the flota to enter the harbor, and were allowed to make the repairs necessary for both fleets to return back to Europe. The Spanish did not trust the English, and the English definitely did not trust the Spanish. Hawkins ordered that the shore be watched, as well as the ships in the harbor. He was to write later, quote, The treason being at hand, some appearance showed, as shifting of weapons from ship to ship, planting and bending of ordnance from the ships to the island where our men warded, passing to and fro of companies of more men than required for their necessary business, and many other ill likelihood which caused us to have a vehement suspicion. End quote. The English were ready for this treachery. They had heavily armed men posted at battle stations. Their archers in the rigging, every man carried a sword, and any man who knew how to use one carried a firearm. The cannons were all loaded and prepared to be fired. And on the morning of September 23rd, they were. As the Spanish ships crossed the water to reach the English fleet, the English opened fire. More than 300 men attempted to board the Jesus of Lubbock and were repelled. The English fleet scored a direct hit against the vice-admiral of the Spanish fleet, ripping a hole through her hull, and eventually the ship's magazines exploding. The Jesus and the Minion were able to cut themselves free of their moorings and turn to battle. The Spanish ships were in flames. More than one ship was sinking to the bottom of the harbor with Spaniards upon her. It appeared that the English had won the day. But then, from the mainland, another set of ships... Reinforcements came to aid the Spanish. As the new Spanish fleet arrived, the angel was sunk. The swallow and the grace of God were overtaken. The Jesus of Lubbock herself, the fleet's flagship, was dangerously close to sinking. Hawkins ordered Francis Drake on the Judith to take many of his men and some of the riches that they had incurred on this voyage upon his ship and get out of sight of the battle. Then Hawkins gave the order to abandon ship. The Jesus of Lubbock, the Queen's flagship, was abandoned. Hawkins and his men made it to the Minion and began to sail away from the battle. Unfortunately for Hawkins, his orders to Drake had not been followed. Captain Francis Drake was nowhere to be seen. John Hawkins said later, quote, The Judith forsook us in our great misery. 
end quote. Over a hundred English sailors, nearly all of the slaves left to the English fleet, and all but two ships were left in the hands of the Spanish. This was a great defeat for John Hawkins. But even that was not his worst concern. He knew that his actions on the Spanish main were going to lead undeniably and unavoidably to war with Spain. And on the front lines of that war was going to be a young sea captain named Francis Drake. Next week, we're going to continue our journey with Francis Drake and look at the opening moves of the conflict between Spain and England. This will be England's first great victory against the Spanish, and it will also set the stage for many of the myths and legends that the pirates themselves handed down. But that will all have to wait until next week. For now, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Some of you may have noticed that today's episode was a little bit late. I ran into some complications during the recording process and managed to get them all rectified in just a couple of days. I'd like to thank you all for your patience and hope that you tune in again next week. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you're enjoying it, I suggest you go over and check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not go on over to our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. Over there, you can find some supplemental information, such as maps and paintings, as well as leave a comment. We're also accepting donations on the website through PayPal, and some of you have been very kind to make a donation, and we'd like to thank everyone that has. However, that's not the only way to support the show. If anybody out there would like to, we really appreciate anybody that would leave a review for us on either iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Podbean, all of which we are available on. You could also follow us on Twitter at Black Flagcast, or give us a like on Facebook at the Pirate History Podcast. And once again, most importantly, thank you for listening. Let him live on in legend tonight.